out there in listenership land, welcome to X-Rated. This is a podcast by two guys who used to date and now they don't. Two sensual gentlemen who speak in hushed tones. They simply talk about movies and toilets. I just flushed the living room toilet that I'm sitting on. You've, uh, you've since got a second one here, Matt, and I appreciate it. <laughs> Listeners from the election episode will remember that I had handymen over. That, of course, was to install the second toilet in my living room. Now, Ryan and I face each other eye to eye, shitting while recording the podcast. <laughs> I appreciate you putting a bidet in mine. It's nice. And it's a heated one, even. Oh, I can control the temperature here. It's nice. Yeah, but the strength is only high and higher. Yeah, so. well, I mean, you got to blast it off of my butt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> I need like a like a pressure washer. I was going to say, it also comes out scalding hot. <laughs> I, I mean, that's how I like it. It's like <laughs> a kettle boiling over in there. <laughs> as hot as possible. I, I want a water saw, basically, blowing <laughs> every bit of debris when it's done, your butthole just looks like, you know, a test zone for, like, nuclear material. Yeah. You press the go button, and there's just a mushroom cloud of steam. <laughs> Here, I'll do it right now. Mm. Mm, my glasses are fogged up. <laughs> wow. Wow. See, this is why we need to have opening banter <laughs> planned ahead of time, because otherwise, this is where it's going to go. I feel like we do really bad at the improv. <laughs> if you and I had to go up and make make up a skit on the spot, I don't know how we'd do. No, no, no. If somebody shouted a word, we'd just... Fingers crossed it was toilet, because then we could really <laughs> nail it. But other than that, we're fucked. in that uh, clip from 30 Rock. The audience suggestion is Sling Blade and Oprah on a date. I sure do like them French fried potatoes. No, you don't, Oprah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it but would be, be like. you and I. <laughs> <laughs> we had to put a, a, a ringer in the audience. <laughs> or, or we'd just be up there like, I believe I heard someone say toilet. <laughs> Nobody says anything. We're like, I think I heard toilet. <laughs> toilet. Toilet. There it is. Here we go. Toilet. Jack yeah, Nicholson I'm... on the toilet. <laughs> hey, Jack. I'm Leo DiCaprio. Glad to hear you installed this toilet in your living room. Mind if I take a seat? Ooh, this bidet. The water's so warm. <laughs> You won't need to climb up on a door to survive that water, will ya? Boy, I hope we get to do another movie besides The Departed together. I got nothing. <laughs> I froze. I'm done. Oh, well. Thus ended my improv career. We'll practice. I will say, I think I do an all right Jack Nicholson on the spot. <laughs> I don't know how it'll sound on pod, but I don't know. I mean, my, my Leo was choice so. it's like he was in the room with us <laughs> i mean i wish i would have started with oh it was in titanic <laughs> but you know i think you got it i think you got it <laughs> i mean that is how he starts every conversation right 
Titanic comes out doing his best Tony Danza impersonation. It's Leo Angela. God, I'm a terrible improviser. Well, now you know. I give you nothing there. At least you know. You were giving out gold, and I was just nothing in return. So now we know even even the toilet plant won't uh, won't save us. Ah, oh, this was terrible. We should just start over. <laughs> I almost feel like we need to just keep going, just in case we get another like two, three minutes of goodness for you. Because <laughs> that hour and a half of improv there really didn't give you enough. All right, you're you're Isabella Rossellini. What am I dressed as? Um, Bumblebee, turtle, catfish, uh, Venus flytrap. Okay. And uh, I am a housefly. Okay. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. Okay. Okay. And uh, we're we we matched on Tinder. Go. <laughs> Wait, are we just talking on Tinder, or is this our first date? No, we've met. We're meeting for the first time. We matched on Tinder. Oh, hello. I like the way you buzz. Oh. Well, thank you. I try to buzz well when I can. Uh, so, so tell me, Brundlefly, uh, how do you eat your foods? Well, I've got a proboscis that I, that I slowly lower into fluids and, uh, you know, uh, sweet things. I, I'm very fast moving and I need a lot of energy. So I eat a lot. Tell me about your mating rituals. It's in, out, and off to the races. Do you have multiple peni? Hey, you tell me. I can't see. I've got a million eyes. It looks like I do, but I don't know. First off, I disagree with your million eyes. We have two eyes. We don't see double. <laughs> so let's just clear that up right away. Uh, <laughs> Wait, you're a plant. You don't have any eyes. But if it gets that far, how will we make the love? Which reminds me, now, how did you swipe correctly? <laughs> Do you even know what I look like? I just closed my mouth hole in one general direction. <laughs> I, I moved the top part of my mouth to the to the right. <laughs> Tell me about you. What, what, what do you do for fun on a Saturday? Uh... <laughs> Well, I enjoy eating flies. And <laughs> Tell me, I hear your nickname is Lumpy. Can you assure me that this is true? Hey, you get that nickname from having lots of lumps on your dick. <laughs> and guess what? I got them. What is lumpier, your penis or your face? You tell me. <laughs> there it is. Face. <laughs> well, hey, are we going to fuck or what? <laughs> Well, as you know, I'm very interested in the mating rituals of animals and insects. I have a whole web series on it. So I really only came on this date in order to get more information on that and then to eat you. Great. I mean, you know, nature always finds a way. So here I go. This might be our worst episode yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite possible.
today's film, a modest little outing from 1992 by the name of Poison Ivy. So Ryan, as I mentioned last week, I truly am sad that our study into the erotic thriller genre is coming to a climax, if you will. Out of all the sort of themes that I've explored, this is one that you can anticipate us revisiting. Fair enough. I, I Yeah, I actually went online to see if the movie I chose last week, Enemy, actually falls into the category of erotic thrillers. They have a really nice Venn diagram of what an erotic thriller kind of is. Where? Who made this? On Wikipedia. This is on Wikipedia. Oh. I actually looked up, what is erotic thriller? I think I might have went to Google.com and typed that in. Um, Google.com, you say? <laughs> what is this new site that I've never heard of? Well, you of? see, if you need to search for something on the internet, you go to www. Well, don't forget the HTTP forward slash forward slash colon www.google.com. And... Uh, this is just a website for different types of goggles. No, no. You you put goggle.com. <laughs> oh. Uh-huh. www. <laughs> I'll send you the link. It'll, it'll be okay. <laughs> but, uh, the, yeah, the Venn diagram of, of erotic thrillers is a psychological thriller, some kind of romantic love. Oh, it's a three-sphere yeah. diagram. And okay. uh, some kind of softcore sex. Okay. And... Uh, this movie fits that bill very nicely. Oh, absolutely. But also, the, on that on the website, they said that there was probably somewhere between like 500 erotic thrillers made between 1985 and 1999, those, that 15-year period. We've done five. So Yeah. This is actually the movie that I wanted John Coons to come on for. Oh, okay. Because John Coons is a fan of camp. And I felt that this movie, more than other erotic thrillers, straddles that line between, like, camp and serious art. Like, Basic Instinct, I feel, is only really campy if you're looking at it through that lens. Sure. If you're looking at it as, like, a legitimate, like, serious movie, it is one. I mean, all Paul Verhoeven movies can be seen a certain way through certain lenses. He loves that straddle. And, you know, he came on from Mother's Boy, and he was great. I love John... Uh, his contribution to Mother's Boy. But, like, that one definitely falls on one end of the spectrum. It doesn't straddle anything. And this movie, I feel, actually kind of straddles that line a little better than Mother's Boy did. It's got the sort of campiness to it, but it also has some, like... The filmmakers threw their back into it. Sure. Well, and to a certain extent, they succeeded in making an erotic thriller. Oh, yeah. I mean, it hits that Venn diagram middle yeah so we could have a whole series on just post rehab drew barrymore (laughs) uh which might be one of my themes one day so drew barrymore child actress i think like the myth of like the child star like hitting the skids is a little overblown Mm -hmm. like we hear about the lilos and the justin biebers and the danny bonaducci's and things like that and I think that sort of obscures to, like, all the success stories. Like, Jodie Foster turned out fine. Yeah. There's a lot of child actors that turn out just fine that we don't pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And I think we purposely, like, we are more drawn to the disasters, the car wrecks. Love the scandals. But of the child stars, Drew Barrymore did sort of have, like, a hard fall. So she's in 
pretty big movies. You know, you got E.T. in there, and then she does, like, a uh, she's got Firestarter, and she's got Cat's Eye, which were, you know, they're not big by today's standards, but at the time, like, they were well-known movies. Right, and she's sort of the star of those, too. Yeah, exactly. As a child, so that's and, a big deal. And, you know, there were Stephen King adaptations, which was also, like, very big in the 80s. Sure. Know? So she had to go to rehab when she was, like, 12. I believe it was on the set of Firestarter where she was just, like, bombed out of her mind the whole time and if you watch that movie it looks that way so she goes to rehab when she's like 12 and then when she's like 15 starts trying to make a comeback and it's like those movies are horrible (laughs) like far from home is like like i'll gladly watch it again it's not a good movie (laughs) but poison ivy was like the film that was gonna like get her back on like the mainstream Mm -hmm. but she was still underage she was 17 when the movie released so probably 16 when they were filming it so it's not like she could like she couldn't do a a a full stone and Mm -hmm. like Mm -mm. there couldn't be a a, an interrogation scene a la basic instinct there's a pretty racy moment in the unrated version that i watched where i was like i don't want to see 17 year old booby was it the making out with tom scared in the rain yeah yeah I would censor that, too. Like, if I worked for the MPAA, I would probably be like, uh, this is going to be NC-17 unless you cut this. Yeah. I support that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so I think one of my fascinations with Drew Barrymore at this stage is that I don't actually think, like, being a gay man, I don't see her as an attractive being. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of fascinating to me to see, like, you know, Crypt Keeper Tom Skerritt, like, lusting for her. <laughs> He's so old. He, he, I swear to God, if you combine all the ages of all the female stars, you're only half of a Tom Skerritt. <laughs> like... He's so old in this movie, and he's surrounded by, like, preteen women. I used to watch Picket Fences, which was on at this time, and I don't remember him looking this old then. I don't remember him looking that old either, but, like, in this movie, because, spoiler alert, you see his butt. It looks withered (laughs) and terrible. You're right. It looks like an old, old, Uh, old man's butt. Yeah. It was really disturbing. Like, Skin for skin, we probably get more of Scarrett than Barrymore. Why? Do you remember that episode of King of the Hill where he discovers that he has a flat yeah. butt? That's what this looks like. <laughs> yeah. It looks like Tom Scarrett has uh, Hank Hill syndrome. <laughs> Which, if you're, you know, middle-aged conservative man, straight man, you don't need a butt. No. Like, no one's aching to get a crack at that but don't show it (laughs) i know that's the problem (laughs) i definitely ended this movie on a big question mark this is not a no on the riddler to question (laughs) mark scale this is definitely in the question mark zone there's a weird thing with this pacing because it is a 90 minute movie but it feels like two two and a half hours long to me i struggled with that and i struggled with it's really uneven as and unclear as to who we're supposed to care about. Like, characters... Sylvie. Get, fo- ...get focused on... Well, but she disappears for a huge section of the movie. So Does I'm sort she? of like, who I, are we supposed to care about now? Well, it, it, I do remember the, like... There is sort of the unreliable narrator thing going on here because Sylvia, Sylvie, is like the, the narrator. By, uh, Sarah Gilbert from Sarah, Roseanne. From Roseanne. Darlene from Roseanne. Who, and The View. Or no, The the Talk, if you watch that. 
because she's the narrator. So, like, the mm-hmm. idea is that this is all from her perspective. But there is, like, a solid 40 minutes where she is, like, a supporting role in <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, she just kind of disappears. Because I remember once her, like, narration, like, comes back at some point, like, in, like, the third act. I was like, oh, that's right. <laughs> We're supposed to be focusing on her. Yeah, I was like, oh, no, no, no. She, she's the, the, the hero in this story. She's the protagonist. Yeah. and then But there's also weird moments where, like, the mom is going to commit suicide. And she has this long section where she's looking at photos of her and her husband before she does it. And it's just like, okay, is this character development? Is this just supposed to make us sympathize with her? And then Tom Skerritt's character, too, has, like, a long moment where he's deciding whether he should drink alcohol or not. And you're sort of like, God, we're really spending a lot of time with these characters who should be tertiary. It almost seems like we're supposed to sympathize with Ivy, with Drew Barrymore's character. And I feel <laughs> conflicted about that because she's, she's problematic in a lot of ways. I don't know if I ever got into that mindset. But there is just, like... This weird thing that, like, Sarah Gilbert, Sylvie, is supposed to be the narrator, and then there's, like, a solid 40 minutes where she's suddenly, like, the tertiary character in this story. Because all the sex scenes, it's, like, well, happen without her, and or, so or, it's sort of, like... Or the scene when Ivy, spoiler alert, pushes the mother out the balcony. Yeah. And it's, like, if we're really getting the story from Sylvie's point of view... We shouldn't know this. That's what I mean. It's like, so any of the sex scenes, Sylvie doesn't know about, but we're lingering on these basically softcore porn moments. And it's like, are we suddenly following her? I don't understand. Like, it's very confusing. All right. I I think I'm confused when you say, like, who we're supposed to sympathize with, because Ivy's never sympathetic. Like, we're never really on her side. No. But she is the lead character for, like, all of Act 2. Yeah. So there is that problem. When I defend this movie, it's not because it's a well-crafted movie. (laughs) Like, I want to say that right now. When I defend this movie, it's because the amount of happiness that it elicits out of me mm-hmm. is so genuine and so real that I have to go to bat for it. Okay. Like I can't I can't stand up for the craft of this, but I will stand up for the outcome of it. Okay, that's you're gonna have to defend it because I think the ending is no, real hard. No, 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 no that, that, that's totally fine. No, no, no. <laughs> you, you can you can lob whatever mud you want onto this one. I'll 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 swing right at it. But I don't want to say I didn't enjoy it too. On top of that, it's a real ambivalence I've got towards so this movie. Right at the beginning of the movie, like scene one of Ivy on that rope swing. She was definitely a turnoff, too overt. Look at her. Obviously, big problems. I mean, most girls don't fly through the air with their skirt around their waist. I can't imagine where she came from. I mean, none of the other kids that go to my school are that skangy. I really wish we could be friends. Right away, like, two minutes into this movie, with... Like, so little dialogue. Like, we get a little bit of Sarah Gilbert's narration, but a lot of it is just Drew Barrymore on a swing looking seductive. And it's like we already know what kind of movie we're in for. Like, mm-hmm. the opening scene tells us what the movie is going to be. She says, like... I'm more the politically, environmentally correct feminist poetry reading type. You know, boring. I thought for sure she was going to be like, you know, 
a dyke. <laughs> she didn't. She later comes out later. She's like, I told my mom I was a lesbian. Yeah. But it's like, that was just to make her mad. Honey. Honey. Real quick, I just want to touch on the excellent casting for the leads. We have Drew Barrymore as the, the jail bait. And then we have plain Jane Sarah Gilbert as Sylvie, who's like supposed to be the one that like can't get the attention of who she wants. I actually kind of like both of their performances. I'm oh, not gonna, no, they're both great. I'm not going to hate on either of their performances. Sarah Gilbert... There are moments where she's a little wooden and not great, but there are moments where she's very subtle. Can't I, like, I mean, isn't there anything that I can do? Like, anything to make you feel better? Why? Because I have a blank spot in my schedule. I mean, what do you think? I feel bad all the time and I don't know what to do. You get both sides of the coin there. And Drew Barrymore in the same way, where, like, Drew Barrymore is acting her heart out. This is the best she can do. I, <laughs> yeah. really, I really feel this is the best Drew Barrymore can do. And it's pretty good. <laughs> I'm just going to... I mean, it's not great. I'm, I'm going to be honest. It's not amazing acting. But you know what? It, in this movie and what sh- the material she has to work with, I buy it. Well, my mom died in her 40s. But she was dead way before that. She only pretended to be alive. She was so coked out all the time, looking out windows. Every shadow was a cop or a dealer she owed. She was always asking if I heard noises. And she flinched every time I touched her. So we get the idea that Sylvie, Sarah Gilbert's character, she wants attention so bad in different forms. And Ivy gets it so effortlessly. Early on, you know, why is Sylvie in detention? It's because she called in that bomb threat. And the bomb threat was to a local television network. And it's because some right-wing crazy was talking about how teenagers are too hormonal to have driver's license. He said the age should be raised to 21. Well, how'd they know it was you? Wait a sec. I've seen your dad. He is that guy. Spoiler alert. That's her dad. Yeah. her The right-wing crackpot is her father. Ivy comes along. She just leans in the car, showing her cleavage. That gets the dad's attention. Yeah. Hi. Mm. It's nice and cool in here. Um, I missed my ride. Think you could take me to Olympic in Fairfax? She gets it just... Ivy gets it without even trying. Whereas Sarah Gilbert... Sylvie has to fucking call in a bomb bomb threat. threat. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And that sort of plays out. We we get it later with the emotional manipulation of the dog, Fred. Mm -hmm. Fred, come here. No, Fred, come here. No, Fred, come here. Ivy gives the dog little doggy treats, which could be symbolic of other little treats uh whereas sylvie just you know got fred's love through you know normal forms of affection she didn't give the dog treats she didn't take the cheap and easy way to get the dog's love and that plays into it as well that 
Ivy comes into the picture for a couple weeks or however long she's there, and suddenly Fred, the dog, loves her just as much as she loves Sylvie. Sure. And, you know, all these things that Sylvie works so hard to get come effortlessly to Ivy. Okay. Of the erotic thrillers that we've done this season, this is the only one where there's two female leads. Right. It's also the only one directed by a woman. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's important, honestly. No, and Especially in this... Uh, you know, it's important to know that this is coming from a woman's point of view. But, you know, I mean, there might be the lesbianic undertones, but it's never made explicit. Maybe Sylvie's got a little thing going for Ivy, you know. It could be a non-sexual crush, And too. Ivy sees an easy target, I think. Yeah, we don't get much into Ivy's background. Well, Ivy's not even a real name. I think that's a real problem in this movie. Oh, really? Yeah, because I, I think that Ivy is a one-dimensional character. We don't know anything about her. We don't know anything about her motivations. We don't know anything about where she comes from except for things she's told us, but she's we know that she's willing to lie. So, and But she's not sophisticated enough to be a sociopath, so it doesn't seem like she's just doing this for nefarious reasons. Mm. She's a real... <sighs> She, well, she's mean, just I, a puzzle piece that that we don't we that doesn't fit anywhere. Well, I mean, I, I definitely really got understand. the idea that she was doing it for financial gain or security. But because, for, but why? Like, does she? You come don't think from, financial security is enough of a reason? Well, no, because I don't know where she's coming from. I don't understand. Like, she says that her aunt is like pushing her off onto these homes and getting money for it, and that's the way to to. That's why. That's the way she's living. But I don't know. I don't believe her. Because I don't, we don't see any of that. I would have liked just one cut back to you know her alone in the house that she lives in. We don't get that. We just have to take her word for it, which I don't because she's constantly lying to manipulate people. But if she had means by another end, do you really think she'd be doing this? Like that's the impression that I get. Like if she could get what she wanted, you know by other means she would what if she's just middle class and bored and wants to like get higher up uh but i mean that's still financial gain then what if she's rich and wants to piss off her daddy and so she's going to a different house i mean i never got that from what we see but we don't know that's my point but we don't not know either there's nothing that says that that's no there's nothing saying one thing or the way so but that's what i mean is like since we don't know she becomes one dimensional she's just like there for gain mm, i think i don't know about that it's a problem i have you might be reaching off frame with that assumption i, I don't know i don't what else do we know about her besides that she's manipulative well that's about it that she's a sexy piece of jail bait that's one dimension <laughs> So you don't feel that Sharon Stone and basic instinct is one dimensional then no because she's a sociopath and that is a second dimension? Yes. That adds another dimension. <laughs> and Deborah Cara Unger and Crash? Listen, it's different for Drew Barrymore's character because she is carrying this movie. So she needs to have more. Like, Deborah Cara Unger is a important pillar of Crash, but she's not the main character. She's not the title character. Okay. Her name is not Crash. <laughs> you know? It'd be awesome if it was, though. <laughs> I know. But, uh... I just need more from this main character. But she's not the main character. Sarah Gilbert's the main character. But then, (laughs) that's my problem. It's like, listen, 
Okay, so I think we've gotten off on the wrong foot. <laughs> it's a, a problem for me when I don't know who I'm supposed to follow or who I'm supposed to care for. And I f- But what about the movie makes you think you're supposed to care for Ivy? Well, I'll give you a specific example. After she pushes Cheryl Ladd off the balcony, we get this long lingering shot of her. Af- she pushes Cheryl Ladd off the thing. You can see this sort of confusion on her face. Sarah Gilbert comes in, she hides off the side of the balcony, leaves, and then we're still lingering on Drew Barrymore's face. And at that moment, I felt like, what is she thinking? What is she feeling? What is happening with her in this moment? Because it's it's there long enough that I think that the idea is that you're supposed to question what she is doing in that moment. See, I thought it was a a call back to the beginning when that dog was hit by a car. And everyone's like, oh my god, we need to, like, do something. And Ivy comes up and just hits it with a pipe. Sure. And puts it out of its misery, essentially. And the way that she kind of shrugs that off as, like, you know, NBD. And but then this one she can't shrug off because it's a person? Well, no, I thought she still was shrugging it off. It might have been a little bit harder, but she was still shrugging it off oh see i didn't get that i got her as like actually feeling uncomfortable with the fact that she killed a person i think that that is what we were intended to see is like oh she feels uncomfortable with it but is shrugging it off hmm. like that that's what i got out of it was like you know she shrugged off you know putting the dog out of its misery and now she's putting cheryl ladd out of her misery mm-hmm. it's a little more difficult in this situation for her to just move forward that's the impression that i took out of the scene see but i mean even then like we're asked to sympathize with her and i don't understand why because i don't know where she's coming from i mean this might just be a division and like you know by the time ivy's off the swing in in the first scene i'm like i'm on board with this movie with the flip she does yeah like i'm just like yep I'm on this movie side. So it could be just that like, by the time we get to something like that, I'm already projecting what I think this movie is trying to be onto mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, as I've said before, an erotic thriller is, is, is a genre of film that like, it doesn't even have to be that good for me to like it. Someone more critical <laughs> might not see the things in it that I'm seeing in it. Sure. 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 I'm just confused because I feel like, the director wants us to sort of sympathize. And she's on record for saying, like, I don't want everyone to think of Ivy as some, like, evil villain. I want people to think of her as a victim. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, Did well, not succeed there. I don't understand why I'm supposed to feel like she's a victim. We don't get that story. All we see of Ivy is that she's a liar and a manipulator and is going to do whatever she can to become this mother figure in this household like she wants to replace Cheryl Ladd no matter yeah. what yeah and, and, and in that moment when she pushes her off it speaks to kind of the credit of this movie is that like it is interesting to think about what she's thinking at that moment because she's a teenager and she just committed murder and she's like been plotting for this the whole time and suddenly it's like Maybe she's uncomfortable with this. Maybe she doesn't know how to move forward. Like it's different in Basic Instinct because she's a, she's uh, an adult who has probably killed before and is like ready to to do this again. Whereas like 
this is probably the first time that this teenager has killed, you know? So it's like, it's a little different thing. She's not an established sociopath. So it, it makes it harder to understand why she's doing this, I guess. Yeah, uh, I, I will give it that. If 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 the goal of the director was to make Ivy sympathetic, then in that case, it was not a success. Because <laughs> the movie that I saw, Ivy's just a sociopath. Okay. She decides that she wants to replace Cheryl Ladd. Fun fact real quick, Cheryl Ladd was a Charlie's Angel. Oh, right. And Drew Barrymore played <gasps> the same character in the Charlie's oh Angels movie. God. So... This movie had a $3 million budget. What? I don't know where it went. Because, <laughs> I mean, maybe it went to just that casting. That sports car, maybe? I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah, the Corvette, yeah. That's crazy. It only grossed $1.8 because it was only released in 20 theaters in the United States. If you watch the trailer for this movie, it looks amazing. Oh, really? I watched the trailer and was like, well, holy shit, this is not the movie I just watched. It's nice and cool in here. Um, I missed my ride. No. Dad, she's my best friend. But Ivy didn't just want a friend. Ivy wanted more. Kudos to the people who made that trailer. It is cool. It looks like a really cool movie. So, (laughs) uh, it was only released in 20 theaters, which means that it averaged 90 grand per theater. That's pretty good. You know, I like those odds. But this movie has spawned not one, not two, but three sequels. Holy shit. And guess who's seen them all? Oprah. (laughs) No, the three sequels to this are softcore pornography. It's like Cinemax... 11 p.m. Friday night showing. This movie is softcore, though. No, no, no. no. <laughs> We're talking, like, completely plotless, like, the moment, like, a female character shows up on screen, it's like, suddenly there's no dialogue, it's super sexy music, and, like, they're just rubbing, like, uh, pool balls on their nipples. <laughs> like, it's it's absolute throwaway garbage. <laughs> Like, if you're giving this movie a B, you're going to give the Poison Ivy sequels a D minus. <laughs> and I already feel like you're giving this one a C minus, so I don't even know how you'd rate the sequels. It's like a C, C plus, tops. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Movie I saw is definitely solid B. <laughs> you didn't like the awful soundtrack? <laughs> so, like, the Poison Ivy... Oh! <laughs> the, the theme itself is fine. Like, when we get the opening credits, it's like... The soft sax and things like that. I can live with like that. Or like the piano theme that like Sarah Gilbert like plays and records for her mother. Like that's all fine. But I can like, live with that. When uh, Poison Ivy like comes over to the house. Mm. Oh, it's so bad. I had a couple frowny um, moments with the sound. And she comes over and she's like, oh, I love the piano. And like clearly the piano she's playing is not the one in the room. <laughs> and it's like boogie, woogie, woogie, uh, Little Richard <laughs> style stuff. But it's not just the score, it's the soundtrack, too. Like, they get, like, Ugly Kid Joe for the soundtrack. Yeah. It's so I would say bad. the soundtrack is one of the main offenders of this movie. It's it it's dated AF. Oh, like, yeah. It sounds so early 90s. Oh, yeah. And then the original score, too, is pretty dated, because it, it sounds like something somebody made on their on their keyboard at home. Well, because like 
the opening credits and like the the theme the the Ivy theme song, I feel is fine. But it's like the rest of the music. They're like, well, we only had budget enough for for orchestra for one theme. They had three million dollars. Where'd that money go? <laughs> All into Tom Skerritt's flat butt. Jesus. <laughs> Cheryl Ladd, I guess. I don't know. Charlie's Angels had only been canceled for 10 years, so maybe she still had some star power. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. Mila Kunis still brings it in. So. Yeah. I also... A big problem I had with this was was the, um, the ending, because it's so abrupt. It's like Drew Barrymore dives out of the window, similar to uh, Sarah Gilbert's mom, dies... There's like a, a sort of coloration thing that happens, and then we just get the voiceover of. I still think about her. I guess. I still love her. She might have been even more alone than I was. I miss her. And it's like roll credits. There's no falling action. It's just like, we're done. Do you disagree? I, I guess I'm failing to see where your problem is. Did it's, you have a problem with, with Sylvie still loving Ivy? No. I mean, I, my problem is that we, if we're supposed to be caring about Sylvie throughout uh-huh. the entire movie, why does she just get the write-off as a, you know, a voiceover? Why don't we get her... I don't know, laying flowers on her mother's grave or something like that. I don't know. Usually I feel the need to defend myself against your barbs and jabs, but in this one I don't feel like you really... Uh, what's, the, what's the Shakespearean line? Uh, your wit is like a fencer's mark. It hits, but it does not hurt. <laughs> so you think that it's it's a perfect ending for her to just, for Drew Barrymore's character to just fall out of the of the balcony and dying first of all your inclusion of the word perfect i find to be (laughs) highly irregular do i feel that it's a fine ending to a fine movie yes i do okay no so like they have the confrontation and it ends with drew barrymore falling out the window Uh and dying and sylvie feeling bad that she lost a friend out of it because she did sure you know it's like every breakup so we even when we know that they need to happen, we still feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. This was like a breakup to like a logical extreme. We've had non-sexual crushes before, and you know it's like if you had a non-sexual crush on a sociopath who was sleeping with your dad. Okay, have you never encountered this problem before? <laughs> I guess not. I maybe that's just where we differ because this is old hat for me. <laughs> this movie ends. It's not satisfying, and no? I think it's because we haven't had any kind of development with Drew Barrymore's character. Even though we had all Act Two with her, but what did we have with her other than like fucking Tom Skerritt? Well, maybe this is where you and Cheryl I differ Ladd. because my view of women is one dimensional, <laughs> and. I guess I only see them as potential sex bots to seduce my father. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. as you were friends with them, uh, you have a different view. I guess. But I don't know. I guess I just didn't expect Drew Barrymore to be anything other than a uh, foul temptress. Okay. And that's what she was. 
So, I don't know. I feel like I got what I expected her character to be. Okay. And I guess I'm confused as to why you think that she should have been more. I guess because nobody changes in this movie. Nobody grows. Nobody... Mm, There's no emotional arc. Nothing happens other than, like, you get... Drew Barrymore... See, I beg to differ, because Sarah Gilbert does sort of kill her best friend. Right, but then we still don't get that falling action of her realizing what that means. We get a voiceover that's kind of trite, Mm. but we don't really... You want to see it in Sarah Gilbert's face. Oh, I want to see something. Yeah, some kind of of performance. Okay, Okay. that's fair. That's fair. We We don't understand any of that. We don't see any growth in anybody else we don't see any change it's just kind of one note i don't know for me it's like this is an erotic thriller with two female leads Uh and the only weapons at their disposal is their friendship their emotions and their sexuality okay and they both use them the best they can some of them have more of these tools than the others if these are the tools at your disposal you know it's like a role-playing game with sexuality and I feel that all the characters use these tools the best of their abilities. Hmm. I guess I you just, obviously disagree with me. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get enough. I didn't get enough from anybody. <laughs> well, you, you know, you just need to watch the sequels to get the full picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the car scene real fast, where they get in the Corvette and drive down the road. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of a stretch to assume that this cool cucumber character of Drew Barrymore, who's been lying this whole movie, uh, sings three bars from uh, from this piano thing, and then suddenly Sarah Gilbert's able to piece it together like, wait a minute, you were in mom's room. Tell me what she said when she died. So she was playing it that morning. Oh my God. You were there. I think it's kind of a leap. <laughs> mm, we'll have to disagree there. Because, I don't know, if I was driving a stick, as someone who doesn't know how to drive a stick, and someone was accusing me of, you know, something, more than I cared to admit, I might freak out a little bit while driving. Especially down that it windy just feels road. Like, it just feels like she leaps from, like... Uh, singing her song to I didn't kill your mother <laughs> so quickly after being such a cool customer yeah alright I'll, I'll concede that one <laughs> I did like the car wreck scene because like <laughs> I felt like the, they purposely made it so that like the steering wheel imprint was just right on her boobs but it's like Drew Barrymore was still 17, so she could never get naked in this, so they just had to, like, sexualize her any way they possibly could without getting her naked. I love how that's how Tom Skerritt figured out, like, wait yeah. a minute, you were driving! Yeah. You have the steering wheel bruise on your boobs. Like the- what made it extra? So we watched the not-rated version, both of us. Oh, right? I have no idea what made it unrated. I was There's- assuming it was the, like, part where Tom Skerritt puts his uh, hand under her bra, and, like, you kind of see nipples. You kind of see... S- like there's the implication of nipple yeah 
But you don't actually see one, I don't think. I don't either. No, I don't know what made it unrated, except maybe the inclusion of Tom Skerritt's butt. Or maybe he, like, pulled out and you get a little dong in there. But, oh, like, I didn't see it. You know, in that case, it's like, you need to be at least Tom Skerritt's age to watch this movie. Yeah. <laughs> However Which, old that is. God, wait, I hope we can all reach that age. My doesn't go that high. <laughs> I don't know. I, like now, I feel like I've I've come across as that like I don't like this movie, which isn't true. I just feel like it. Name one thing that you liked about this movie. I liked the moment when after Tom Skerritt and uh, Drew Barrymore had sex the first time, and he picks her up from school and they're driving. He basically is like, "Okay, this needs to be over. Get out of the car right now." You heard me. I heard you. And you can see the like cogs turning in her brain as to like, how can I make this work for me? Mm-hmm. And Drew Barrymore walks this line. And I think that the character of Ivy is good in this way where it's like, this is what a budding sociopath would do is like, she would try to think about how can I manipulate this person? There is a part of her that feels worried that all that she's done is actually hurt this character and you can kind of see that in her brain but then you also see her overriding that and saying like okay i'm going to use this now to manipulate you i thought you said it hurt me That is a really great moment. I liked that a lot. I just don't think that the rest of the movie measures up. I feel like you could switch the focus from Sarah Gilbert's point of view. Like, why is she the one telling the story? I don't know. I like kind of her narration a little bit when she's like... I mean, I never knew anyone that looked that much like a slut. Here she was, my best friend. But then maybe eliminate the the sex scenes because then it, then it feels like we should be focusing on Drew Barrymore's character. Yeah, it it is it is sort of a odd it's combination. To say that it it it's unfocused is one thing, but I I both like the sex scenes and I like Sarah Gilbert's narration. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a price to worth paying. Okay, when Tom Skerritt and Drew Barrymore are like having sex like outside in the rain. I'm like, I just remember thinking, like, why didn't she just have sex inside the car? <laughs> People do it, it looks all the great. time. Like, I mean, it looks sexy and it fits, I mean, this softcore <sighs> porn part the, of the it. The problem for me, though, is, like, I never think Tom Skerritt's sexy. Like, he always looks like some decrepit old geezer, like, about to lose his dentures on some 17-year-old <laughs> woman's breasts. Like, all of it was so gross. And then... The other night when we were at uh, Weird and Awesome with Emma Montgomery, Travis vote of of conversation pieces was like, oh, I remember reading like an uh, an article in Entertainment Weekly where it's like they were filming that scene and it was like so hot and steamy that like the male members of the crew had to like tent their pants and sit down. Oh, and I'm like, Jesus, she's literally like 16 or 17, and Tom Skerritt is literally a million. hundred, <laughs> gross. All the scenes that was like a close-up of his mouth, like it really looked like his dentures were about to fall out. <laughs> hey, uh, don't kiss, don't suck too hard, Drew. 
I mean, you don't have to deal with this problem because, you know, you're taken. But uh, every now and again on uh, various dating apps, they've asked if I wanted to receive a blowjob with them no dentures oh wow yeah have you ever accepted i haven't yet i consider myself to be fairly adventurous so the idea that i haven't said yes sort of conflicts with that uh-huh. but you know like you i feel like i need to draw a line someplace <laughs> sure because like i don't want to show up and have some like tom scarrett with his lame withered mustache like trying to get on my what junk. if it is tom scarrett he lives in <laughs> seattle does he really yeah he's from here but does he live here? I assume he still lives here. Because who would leave? Why? Who? Wh- who? Why? When? When? How? How? I have a question for you then. What made you want to make this the last choice for your sexy shocker season? Because I feel like a lot of the sexy shockers, they're both erotic and campy. And I wanted one that was like equal parts of both seems like it was a little more in one camp than the other for you but to me it it hit both camps right in that sweet spot do you have any final thoughts i actually okay so i'll tell you this I thought that the scene where after the party happens and Cheryl Ladd's in the bed and Drew Barrymore comes in with the champagne, she's like, here, let's drink this. And uh, she, I guess she like dosed Cheryl Ladd, so she passes out and drops her glass. I thought she died. <laughs> oh. Right after that is when there's the scene where uh, Drew Barrymore is rubbing her high-heeled shoe on Tom Skerritt's crotch and he is uh, giving her oral sex... I was like, she just died. Like, not that Tom Scare gave a fuck either way. If she had just died, that would not stop him. I know. Apparently, later he does it anyway. So it's like, you're such a fucking scoundrel. Fuck yeah, you. Yeah, no, he did not give a fuck if she died or not. I know, but it was weird that I thought they were doing that in the bedroom where she had just died. And I was like, don't you just, don't you crap your pants when you die? <laughs> like, wouldn't that kill the mood? I don't know. Would you be able to have sex in a room with a corpse? What corpse? <laughs> Wow, okay. <laughs> Question answered. No, I mean, if I was having sex with someone hot, it's not like if I stop, he's going to come back to life. What if his corpse was farting? How badly? I mean, just over and over again. Bloated. <laughs> Honestly, the farting would be more of a mood killer than the cadaver. I see. Why do you even broach this subject, Ryan? Well, I was just curious because I don't know if you know this, Matt. Our next episode is going to be a double feature. What? We're already at episode 80? 80. Wow. If anybody's going to become a farting corpse, it's an 80-year-old. And, uh... (laughs) Wow. We've decided to honor that by doing a duo of farting corpse movies. I just heard of this right now. No, no, you were in on it. Don't, don't. This is, this is purely a Ryan idea. To be. All credit goes to Ryan 
Evelyn Whedon. Well, you co-signed it, so it's on you. We are doing, for next week, The Three Burials of Melchiatus Estrada and Swiss Army Man, both of which feature corpses that fart. We're going to approach it like a film is lit thing, so we got to both be prepared as to, like, what corpses mean to the protagonists in this movie, these sure. movies. I'm even willing to uh, talk a little bit about what the farts mean. Good, 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 good. Anyway, tune in next week if you're up for some uh, some farting corpse movies. Would you like to plug our junk? Follow us on Twitter, at X-Rated Movies. Please, if you have the time and the energy, write us a review and give us some stars on whatever platform you listen to this to. That it, that could include Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, uh, Google Play, many things. Yeah, just leave us love. It's always good. Leave us love. If you ever want to contact us, probably the best way to do that would be to email us at x.rated.movies at gmail.com. Failing that, you can always... Uh, do anything on our Facebook page at Rated X Movies. Otherwise, we'll be here next week with a duo of corpse farting movies with Swiss Army Man and the three burials of Melchiodis Estrada. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.